Hello, theater lovers. It's me, Bryn. I'm so excited for this, our first interview episode of season two. Having Anne Karina back and back to sort of lead us once again into a new season is very special. And I think you will all enjoy what she has to say about this play, Men on Boats by Jacqueline Backhouse. But first, our announcements. Things are really picking back up. So if you've got time, here are some amazing online theater projects that you can view. Women's Project Theater's newest project, The Norish Project, will be playing through February 7th, streaming live. The show takes place at 7.30 p.m. EST, and tickets are available on wptheater.org. Tickets are free, but there are multiple tiers with suggested donations assigned to them, if you would like to donate to the company. Ars Nova has recently announced their newest Vision Residence and their individual lineups for spring. There are so many cool shows and events planned around each residence thematic concern, from readings to experimental performances to even dance parties. Go to ArsNovaNYC.com and check out their events page. Support these up-and-coming artists. Manhattan Theatre Club has just announced a new online series called Snapshots, which will begin in February. Each show will be 10 minutes long, so they are low-commitment shows for busy people. Their first show, Ritual, will be premiering on IGTV, that's Instagram television for anyone who doesn't know, and YouTube, starting on February 1st. Since this is being posted online, it is completely free to watch whenever you get the chance. New York Theatre Workshop, in partnership with the La Mama Indigenous Initiative and Safe Harbors NYC, has a two-week festival called Reflections of Native Voices 2021 coming up. It runs through February 7th and features theater, music, and native dance performances by Indigenous artists from around the country. You can purchase a $15 festival pass to see all of the shows, or a $10 streaming pass to see one show. These can be purchased on nytw.org. This one is a little late on my part, but I couldn't not tell you guys about this one. First Kiss Theater Company put out an interactive play called Choose Your Own 2021. It's short, it's cute, and by clicking, you support a small theater company. Find it on their website, firstkisstheater.com. Theater of the Electric Mouth is added again with AI-generated scripts. They are having a live reading of their newest one on January 30th, i.e. tomorrow, at 3 p.m. EST. It'll be available for free live on their YouTube and Facebook pages. And if you aren't available but are interested in the idea of AI-generated scripts, you can listen to Theater of the Electric Mouth's recorded pieces on their website, which is just theaterofthelectricmouth.com. Brick Theater is hosting their 46th volume of Out of an Abundance of Caution this Sunday, January 31st at 8 p.m. EST. It's free to view on their Twitch, which is just twitch.tv slash outofcaution, though they have made their PayPal information available for tips. This promises to be an interesting experimental piece, so don't miss it. And finally, a personal promo. If you understand Russian, or don't mind not understanding exactly what's going on, the Russian translation of my play Antidotal was recently performed by the company Vibrating Body. The videos are linked on my website, brynhambly.weebly.com, under the current work tab, if you're interested. All right, and with that, I think it's time to dive into our dramaturgy section for Men on Boats by Jacqueline Backhouse. Jacqueline Backhouse is a playwright, co-founder of Fresh Ground Pepper, and new member of the Kilroys. Her plays include Men on Boats, New York Times Critics Pick, Clubbed Thumb, Playwrights Horizons, published by Dramatist's Play Service, India Pale Ale, Manhattan Theater Club, recipient of the 2018 Horton Foot Prize for Promising New American Play, You Across From Me, co-written with three other writers for the Humana Festival, 
folk wandering, book writer and co-lyricist with 11 composers, Pipeline Theater Company, and You on the Moors Now, Theater Reconstruction Ensemble, among others. She was the 2016 Tao Foundation Playwright-in-Residence at Club Thumb, and she is currently in residence at Lincoln Center. Backhouse holds a BFA in drama from NYU Tisch, where she now teaches. She hails from Phoenix, Arizona, and currently resides in Ridgewood, Queens, with her husband, director Andrew Scoville, and their son, Ernie. Here is a short summary of Men on Boats from Playwrights Horizons. Ten Explorers, Four Boats, One Grand Canyon. Men on Boats is the true-ish history of an 1869 expedition when a one-armed captain and a crew of insane yet loyal volunteers set out to chart the course of the Colorado River. This thrilling and widely acclaimed new play by Jacqueline Backhouse was a New York Times critic's pick. Not included in the summary, but something that is very important to note, the characters of this play are all white men, but are not supposed to be played by white men. In the playwright's notes, Ms. Backhouse makes it clear that the characters are to be played by anyone other than cisgender white men. Keep that in mind as you listen to this dramaturgy. It'll be a small point of discussion later, or maybe bigger. It'll depend on what Anne wants to talk about. We shall see. As you can imagine, the dramaturgical work for a historically-based play such as this is astounding. Anne will tell us all about it. But first, I will give you the quickest and dirtiest version, which will still probably be longer than most dramaturgy sections on this podcast are. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting historical stuff wedged into every nook and cranny of this play. First, let's talk about the expedition this entire play is based on. I found a website in which a bunch of people went on the same route to celebrate the 150-year anniversary of the expedition, and they described the original 1869 expedition's goals pretty well. The expedition started on May 24, 1869. They started at the Green River in Wyoming, which was, at the time, the edge of unexplored territory. The expedition was supposed to take scientific measurements, chart the region, and effectively complete our nation's maps. The entire trip would be 900 miles through territory completely unknown to these men and their culture. There were 10 men on this expedition, including their one-armed leader, Major Powell. There was Major Powell's brother, Walter, professional guide, John Sumner, Hunter, Oramel Howland, Oramel's brother and mountain man, Seneca Howland, Hunter and trapper, William Dunn, cook and possible ex-fugitive William Billy Hawkins, Englishman and boat handler Frank Goodman, 19-year-old oarsman Andrew Hall, and ex-soldier George Bradley. Seven of these men were Civil War veterans from the Union. However, only four of these men were paid for this expedition. The rest were volunteers. The boats were Whitehall rowboats purchased by Major Powell, 21 feet long and 4 feet wide. Altogether, the four boats held some 7,000 pounds of supplies. The play accurately documents the big events of the expedition, such as the loss of one of their boats called the No Name and the loss and subsequent recovery of their barometers. The men that leave the expedition during the course of the play are also accurate to history. The Englishman, Frank Goodman, was the first to leave and he eventually settled in Utah. The Howland brothers and Dunn did indeed leave the company just before they exited the Grand Canyon, never to be seen again. The play doesn't know what happened to them, and neither do we, really. The only casualties were those three men. I could go crazy in depth into each of these men's lives, and we'd be here for hours. That's not the style of this podcast, though, so I thought I'd find one or two interesting or important facts about each of them that could give us insight into their character counterparts in this play. Let's start with Major Powell. We know he lost his right arm in the Civil War. What I didn't know, and isn't talked about too heavily in the play, is that he was a geologist, and would go on to become an anthropologist and work heavily with the Smithsonian Institute. 
Unfortunately, a lot of his anthropological studies were pretty racist. I wish I had expected better, but... Walter Powell was invited on the expedition by his brother. Apparently, poor Walter had been a prisoner of war during the Civil War, and as such, was quite traumatized. He was invited on the trip in the hopes that it would help his mental health. Not sure that was the right move in the end, but I get it. Vitamin D and all that. John Sumner was also a Civil War vet. During the Battle of Pleasant Hill in 1864, he broke both of his legs and dislocated both hips when hit by an exploding shell. He also got hit on the head by shrapnel. Amazingly, he recovered with only chronic headaches as lasting damage. George Bradley was another vet. He served under Major Powell and agreed to come on the expedition in exchange for an honorable discharge from the army. He must have really hated it to exchange a life of running from death for a dangerous and terrifying expedition. Seneca Howland is our fifth veteran. He came along to the expedition after being invited by his older half-brother, Oromel. He was part of the Vermont 16th Regiment and had been present on the final day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Oromel was not a soldier, but instead a typographer by trade. He was very well read due to his occupation and apparently had a keen interest in science. Surprisingly, he was the oldest of the expedition at age 35. Billy Hawkins is our sixth veteran, having been a part of the 15th Missouri Cavalry. However, he was bad at following orders and was not very happy in the military. As he left, he stole most of his military equipment and refused to return it. He was said to be much happier once he was a few years out from the war. Frank Goodman is most well known for being English and for being the first to leave the expedition. He was quite the adventurer, but found himself shaken by his near drowning a few days before his leave. He would live with the Paiute natives for a few years afterwards. Andrew Hall was the youngest of the expedition, at only 19 years old. Hall was actually a Scottish immigrant who came to America as a young boy with his mother and older brother. He was too young to be a soldier in the Civil War, so he hopped on a westbound wagon train and got into all sorts of trouble. That's how Powell met him, actually. And finally, William H. Dunn. I really couldn't find much on him. Most of the information focuses on his death at either the hands of Native Americans or a group of overly paranoid Mormons. All I could really find was that the man was from Colorado. Men on Boats isn't the only dramatization of this expedition. There is also a 1960 film by Disney called Ten Who Dared, and a graphic novel called Major Impossible by Nathan Hale. All right, I think we know enough about the historical event and characters of this play to move into our reading portion. Today, we have Edie Pierce reading the closing monologue from Men on Boats as Mr. Asa. But first... A word from our sponsor. As promised, here is Edie Pierce reading the closing monologue from Men on Boats as Mr. Asa. Oh, don't you worry, Major Powell. Don't worry about them. You'll get your job at the State Department. You'll get the pomp, the circumstance, the accolades. Your exploits will be told far and wide. Your story will outlast even those of your own crew. It won't matter that the bulk of them will end up poor, drifting in the desert, dying in taverns, traversing less exciting things. Don't you worry about that. Because men will name places after you. A forest, perhaps, or a man-made lake. Oh, you all look so glum. This is about you, too, for now. This is your moment. You rode those boats. You made history. Hey, 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 tell you what. I'll tell my children I met you all here on this bank. Here's where I was, I'll say, when those Powell folks clambered out of the canyon. Wow, they'll say wow, and the whole crew tipped their brims to me, I'll say. Wow, they'll say, and the whole crew came over and we fed them back to health, and we kept in touch with all of them, I'll say. 
<laughs> they invited me to Washington. I'll say they gave me a medal for rescuing the ones that made it out. I, I was the reason they all survived, I'll say. It was all because of me. Were they alive? They'll ask me. They were alive, I'll say. You were alive. This was your story. Thank you, Edie, for that rousing performance. Edie's professional details can be found in the show notes of this episode. And now, allow me to welcome back our first return guest, Anne Karina Backen. As I've told you all before, Anne is a dramaturg, director, and administrator. She is currently the Associate Artistic Director for Stay True Theater, a company devoted to making LGBTQ plus theater. She was the dramaturg for Downstage Theater Company's production of Men on Boats back in 2019. Hi, Anne. It's wonderful to have you back on the podcast for uh, technically our first interview episode of season two. God, uh-huh. I can't believe you've already gotten through a whole season. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's insane. Uh, and everyone still... Your episode is one of the most listened to of this podcast, so yeah, I thought everyone totally insane. <laughs> <laughs> I thought everyone would love to hear from you again, uh, because sure. yeah, they seem to like you just as just as much as I do. So, um, <laughs> what have you been up to, Anne? Anything you want to tell us about before we get into our discussion? Oh, oh, I don't know. Um, you know, everybody's. That's sort of the same situation as everyone else right now with quarantine and everything. I don't know. If we we got a new kitten, so that's oh yeah, been taking up a lot of time is um, making sure he doesn't get into anything he's not supposed to. <laughs> uh, all the cat owners out there, we all know that pain. We all do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You guys might even hear my cat getting into some crap during this interview if I forget to edit it out. Um. Yeah. I <laughs> close the the door to my workspace so that no cats would make their way in (laughs) oh don't they love to get into all of our work if only they could actually help (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah and I um I just finished work on a workshop sort of a one week long just with the playwrights of a new musical that's going to be going up in the summer hopefully Um, yeah hopefully (laughs) sort of my most recent um endeavor Wow, that sounds really great. I know yeah. we're all very hopeful that things will open up sooner rather than later, at least hopefully by August. Uh, we're, yeah. we're gunning for it. We're gunning for it, y'all. I want to be at Summerfest. <laughs> <laughs> I, wanna, I want my play to be able to go up. I want to be there. Uh, be. Yes. But now let's move into this discussion about this play. Um, okay. So... Yeah, the first time I heard about this play was when Downstage Theater Company at Sarah mm-hmm. Lawrence College decided to put it up as a part of their season. Uh, I had never heard of it before, <laughs> um, but I really do enjoy historical plays, uh, plays that take uh, a different angle or a different kind of retelling of history. Um, but the hard part about doing a play like that is all of the research that goes mm-hmm. into putting it up. So how do you even begin doing dramaturgy for a play that's based on a historical event? Because there's just so much information. Yeah, I mean, this is actually, it's my favorite type of play to work on. So it's, it's actually just fun for me to do all of that. Um, Specifically, like modern retellings of Um, historical events or anything that's set in kind of recent history I also really enjoy so I worked on like Top Girl something it's set in the 80s Mm -hmm. that sort of thing where it's uh, there's sort of this way to see history through a modern lens Um, so that's the kind of thing that I really enjoy Um, but so this one I mean I think the first thing that I did for this one was I mapped all of the events. So I read the source text because it's based on um, Powell's uh, journals from the expedition. And there are obviously journals from many of the other men who survived. Um, Mm -hmm. But the facts of, or the events of this play are mostly drawn from just Powell's perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. So... I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the first thing is I, I did was I read it and I wrote down and I actually delivered it to the actors 
um, a timeline of all of the different things that happened on every single day of their expedition, like basically wow. a summary, um, mm-hmm. like a one sentence thing of each day. And then I matched those events up to the events in the play. Um, so I found like, ah, yes, this is when the no name crashed. This is when they found Ashley, one, five dash three or whatever, uh, the mm-hmm. number was, on the um, on the rock. Exactly. Um, and so I found this different events and mapped them and matched them up to the events of the play and like found out, okay, well, the play's not necessarily in historical order. Okay, cool. That's, that's information. Number one, um, mm-hmm. is that she's taken liberties with the history. Okay. That's great to know. And then you kind of go from there. Like, um, <sighs> this was actually, uh, this is one of the first shows that I made, a like a formal packet for. Oh, as a okay. dramaturg so it was funny I was um looking over my notes before this interview just sort of reviewing it and just seeing the evolution of two years of packet making because it's become <laughs> part of my process is making mm-hmm. a packet it helps me um do the work um just it's clearer for me to understand what it is that I'm looking at mm-hmm. um And then the packet obviously then goes out to the actors, but it's the first one that I really made a real packet for. Um, And so it's, it's the first time that I made this sort of lexicon idea that I think probably a lot of dramaturgs do, but it doesn't really get talked about. Um, And it's basically just in order of appearance in the show, a list of all of the words that you might not know and what they mean. Um, And so I think that that was probably the second thing I do. I did was just go through the show circle things that are like, ah, yes, I know that the word line means something, but like, Mm. what does it mean in this context? Um, And yeah, sort of breaking it down that way. Um, I also did little like bios of each individual. Um, That was a big part of my research because obviously each of the actors did their own research, but I was able to do sort of a deeper dive into the things that they were interested in. Um, you know, I had more, more slash different resources. So it was yeah. um, a collaboration between me and the actors in that specific part of the research. So that's really cool. I, uh, I actually don't think I've had an experience either as a designer or as an actor where I actually got to like talk to the dramaturg about what I wanted to learn. Yeah. Well, and it's maybe it's because it was with the company that it was with. It was during grad school. Um, I only had two weeks to work on this before they were in rehearsal. So I was pretty much working on it 24-7 for two weeks before rehearsal started. So the, it had already been cast. The actors were already working on it. Like I wasn't doing anything before everybody else. I was doing it gotcha. at the same time, which is sort of unique. It's not usually how things go. I'm usually, at least now that I'm not in grad school and I'm getting real jobs, you know, I get it yeah. several <laughs> months before there's even a thought of a cast. Um, yeah. Whereas with this one, I got like they were doing the same research that I was at the same time and we got to talk about it while I did it um and that actually helped shape the direction that I went in uh for example the person who played Dunn had found something um insinuating that he had lived and that we knew where he was buried um and then I was able to look further into that and discover that it actually was a fake um, mm. and that there was false information out there that somebody had deliberately created and made accessible. So we together were able to find more information about him and what happened. Well, and well, I guess find the lack of information about what happened. Yeah. That's something I talk about in the dramaturgy section with Dunn. I couldn't really find much on him yeah. to be quite honest. Yeah, no, I think he actually, he was the one that I found the least information about. Um, Everyone else, at least the ones who survived in particular, some of the ones like Sumner, like wrote their own, um, wrote their own journals about the events. And so, you know, a lot more about them, but done because he didn't survive and because his body was never found. We have so little information about him. He never sort of lived to tell the tale 
he was kind of a loner before he joined the expedition. So not a lot of people knew him. Mm. And that must be hard for the actor who mm -hmm. uh, plays Dunn uh, yeah. to see not have as much information as the rest of the actors. Yeah. Well, like I said before, finding out that um, Jacqueline Bachhaus, the playwright, had sort of taken liberties with history made it easier, I think, at hmm. least for the actor. Um, because for someone like William Dunn, where we have literally no idea who he was or what he did, um, the only information we have about him is a few lines through Powell's perspective. Um, mm -hmm. You kind of get to start from scratch and build your own person, um, which can be really fun. Yeah. And I don't, you know, as a dramaturg, obviously, I really love the historical stuff, but I also understand and want that to to inform the reality of the portrayal of the character. It shouldn't be the reality. Just help it. Yeah, because it isn't. You're right. It isn't a documentary uh, right. or an exact historical uh, reenactment. It is a form of art. So we can mm -hmm. take our liberties uh, which Jacqueline Backhouse does do not only with the uh, order of events, but also with her casting choices, because she makes a very clear statement in uh, her playwrights notes uh, yeah. that none of these men who historically were cisgendered white men, they're not to be played by cisgendered white men. They're to be played by anybody else. What is the effect of having like women, non-binary people, trans people, people of color reenact a historical event that was, it happened around and it happened to white men? Um, so I think there are a couple answers to this question and I don't necessarily stand by either of them. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, not, not that they're, that I don't agree with them, but because I think I don't feel strongly that one or the other is the true answer. Um, mm -hmm. so I think the first one is just access. Um, there are more roles written, written for men, um, and for white people. So yeah. this is a, a specific and very strong statement that we need to give more roles to anybody who's not white and male. Um, and we yeah. need to provide more opportunities for those people. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just sort of a, a, a standing up against how casting typically works. Mm -hmm. um, and Jacqueline Backhouse is a, a woman of color. And so mm -hmm. of course she has some, some stake in that. Yeah. Um, and then I think the second is the impression that the audience is going to get from seeing female and bodies of color in traditionally white male roles. So mm -hmm. we're seeing female bodies acting out behaviors that we typically associate with men and with specifically white men. Um, and so it causes the audience to question and examine their own perspectives of what mm. they expect a person who looks or identifies a certain way to behave like. Like women are typically more demure or that's what, it, not that we don't want to say that they typically are, but it's what yeah. you expect. That's what sort of the general population is going to expect. You know, a woman is not going to be loud and uh, take up a lot of space, mm -hmm. but here they're being asked to do specifically that. So it's going to yeah. challenge what you expect a woman to be. Yeah. Um, and, and it might shock you a little bit. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully you're, um, you're a little more woke than that. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I hate the word woke, but. Yeah, but, but I know lack, what you mean. But for lack of a better term, you know, it's hope. Ho I wish that it didn't shock, you know, mm -hmm. but I think for the majority of your um, your typical theater going audience, it's going to be a little bit odd to see women and people of color in those roles. And I, this isn't, 
a completely new thing because obviously there are shows like Hamilton that also do this, where they take history that was experienced by a majority mm-hmm. white right. and Hamilton was being males. written around the same time. Yeah, uh, I want to say Hamilton came out in what twenty sixteen, something around that. Um, yeah, when I was in college. <clears throat> yeah, and this this the first production of Men on Boats was in twenty fifteen, so it's around the same time and. Um, when you think about it in sort of cultural context, um, mm-hmm. it's three years after the beginning of Me Too. Um, yeah. You know, the we've got a lot of Black Lives Matter marches are starting to happen on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of part of the cultural consciousness in a way that I don't think it was even five, ten years before. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean... I am white, but as a woman and as a uh, queer woman, I really like this idea of playwrights being like, okay, yeah, I know that this was, you know, white cisgendered men doing their, you know, white cis men thing. But what if we just, uh, like, what if we just took it back? What if we, yeah, yeah. yeah what I'm- if we reclaimed that history? Mm-hmm. One other thing that I think is interesting is the fact that it's so far back in history, relatively. It's not actually that yeah. far back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not a time from which we have a lot of um, a lot of sort of just known information that everybody knows. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's not something that people learn about a lot in school. Or if they do, they learn all of the same sort of really specific um, events and this is one that I don't think a lot of people know about and a lot and the people in it, again, we only know through the eyes of Powell, who mm-hmm. wrote sort of the most comprehensive journal about it. And I'll maybe talk about that a little bit more later. But we actually don't know that these men were all cis. We don't know that these men were all straight. Uh, we don't even know That's that true. these men necessarily were all white. We know that other people identified them as male, um, but that's about yes. it. We know that that's other true. people identified them as white, but that's about it. So I think it, it also speaks to that fact. You know, what we do and don't know is completely dictated by one person's perspective. Yeah. So in a way, it's not just modern day women and people of color, etc., taking back history, but it's also... Mm-hmm us looking at it and being like history is a lot more complicated. It's a lot more colored. It's a lot more queer than we sometimes Mm -hmm. uh, allow ourselves to know about or our society or education allows us to know about. Right. Exactly. I didn't think about it that way, but that that's, I think that's a really important statement to make in regards to this play. Um, Mm -hmm. So speaking of being surprised, um, what was the most (laughs) surprising thing that you uncovered in your research? Because I know, uh, like you just said, I never learned about this in school. So I found quite a bit that I found surprising. But you being the dramaturg, what surprised you? Um, Well, that's kind of a hard question to answer. Um, Just because I think the most surprising thing to me I didn't discover in my research Um, from my research specifically, I would say the most surprising thing was probably that, um, just the unreliability of all of it. Mm. Um, so Bachhaus changed a lot of things. So she changed what jobs some of them had. So like the cook that is in the play is not who actually was the cook in the expedition. And that's sort of not inexplicable, but it just... I think it speaks to the sheer unknown of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Powell's journal actually was lost in one of the oh. capsizings um, about two thirds of the way through the expedition. And so oh. most of it, he rewrote from memory, um, but rewrote it as if it were in the time like as if he were writing it on, you know, June 23rd, even though June 23rd was four months ago. So just the reliability of his narration is so in question. And I think that translated to 
the play in the unreliability of Bachhaus's, um, you know, changing fact to fiction. Yeah, so that's pretty, uh, yeah, I think that's the thing that I, I would say is most surprising for my research specifically. But actually, I think, I don't know, if maybe if I can talk about this, it's not necessarily an answer to the question, but. Um, Go for it. <laughs> um, I'm willing to listen. Yeah, so actually, I was really surprised at the way Bachhaus wrote the um, scene with the two Native individuals. Um, and having done research on all of these people for the time, I, I want to mm-hmm. sort of give it that qualifier, like for the time, they yeah. actually were pretty respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's a way to say that somebody did, did it right, did like, did anything right at the time, because looking mm-hmm. back, we can obviously say, ah, yes, people were were terrible to native individuals at the time. But I think for in the context of history, these men actually were really respectful. Um, They had friendships with some of the native individuals who lived in the area. They stayed with them for a decent amount of time. One of the men in the, in his second expedition actually decided to stay and married a, a woman from one of the tribes that they, um, visited and he wow. just stayed there and lived his life in a on a on a native land um, wow. with one of the tribes and didn't continue on the expedition and I thought that was really sort of lovely I guess yeah I think was that Frank Goodman I believe I mentioned that in my dramaturge section actually uh, yeah that sounds right um, I believe that yeah. was him. So I think I look, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting to note that for the time, they were actually pretty, pretty decent. Yeah. I know I wrote notes actually um, in my notes about the play. Um, I wrote a note about that scene and I was like, mm-hmm. it's hard to watch. Um, but I really liked it because, oh, and it was Frank Goodman. Um, <laughs> I just looked and saw. <laughs> um, but what I really liked about it was that the natives were like, Oh yeah, hmm. Isn't it interesting? You're discovering this, isn't that a right? Fun? You're naming things. Well, we already had names for those things, uh, right. and they're not like shy about it. No, it. Yeah, they have they, the power in that scene. Exactly, exactly. Um, I well, I will say they have the power, but it's also still, frankly, a pretty insulting portrayal. Um, oh yeah, really simplified. Um, which, you know, all of the portrayals of the men are simplified. So I think it goes along with the play as a whole. I don't think that that is an outlier. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't love that scene. Um, it is definitely interesting, that's for sure. But um, I guess sort of just to finish out my point here, a lot of, even mm-hmm. with the namings, a lot of the names that they chose are either translations of or... Um, direct uh like the native word that was already for that place so yeah they Mm -hmm. named places but i don't think at least my interpretation is that they never set out to discover it was always Mm -hmm. to map it was always simply Mm -hmm. to observe and note um yeah i don't think yeah, I think that for for a lot of expeditions and ex- what we call explorers, there's this sense of I found, and there isn't that sense with this group. Um, hmm. They weren't the first, you know, to no. arrive. They, they were <laughs> the first white people to arrive, even like yeah, they just simply were the first to map, and I think that's an important distinction. Um, not that I'm defending them. Like they were in their own way. Um, they, they did things. Powell was not a great person. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. (laughs) That's okay. I, I, uh, am become very good at beeping things out. (laughs) (laughs) I think you have. Um, yeah, like Powell was not a great person. He was, he definitely had an ego of about six people all shoved into one. But oh, like yeah. for in, in the context of the time 
and in the context of explorers in general, I think they actually did a decent job of respecting the land and respecting respecting the people who already inhabited it. Yeah, more so than a lot of people who uh, would come after them. Yeah. And that's actually, that's a question that I got from one of the actors during the process. She was like, what, what do you want us to come away from this with? And I said, you know, these are, these are good people, you know? And I think that's something to know about all people that we demonize in plays Mm -hmm. or in history. It's like they're, it's, nobody's all bad, which, you know, when we're, when we're looking at people today, nobody's all bad. Every single person has things that we would rather they didn't have inside of them. Yeah. Um, but trying to sort of humanize in order to understand is important. Yeah. Remembering the shades of gray. Nothing is all good or all bad. Right. And in writing a play, you know, um, you have to, I'm sure Bachhaus sat and thought, okay, which facts am I going to skew and which am I going to keep? Um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, I don't know <laughs> what else I'm trying to say here, but, um, it's definitely a very specific outlook on yeah. the expedition. And I do think that it's important to, if we're studying the history of the time to consider that this is one perspective and Powell's is one perspective and there are so many others. Yeah, and I think that's something we wrestle with in uh, education systems, because history uh, is written by a lot of different people, but we Mm -hmm. tend to only teach or learn about one specific perspective. So it's really good to have art like this that takes that history and looks at it from a different perspective. Right. What if we considered this, that, or the other thing, you know? Yeah, and it... it what one of the maybe it's one of the problems that I have with this play is that it is so polarized, and I do it think is. that's the point. Um, but it is very polarized, and it's hard to humanize any of them because they're just ridiculous. <laughs> they're completely yeah. ridiculous, and that's that's the point. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that it, if for for the point that it is intending to make, it has done a good job. But I think that it misses a lot of the the human aspects of mm. what it, what actually was going on at the time. Yeah, that's a good thing to point out, I think. Because uh, obviously no play is perfect or exactly no. to our liking, just like these characters and people are never perfect. Exactly. Um, but speaking to that, um, was there a part of the play that you really did enjoy or that you <laughs> thought was uh, the most successful or even just the part that, you found uh to be fun or interesting yeah i I don't sort of um in asking this question i just want to clarify i do love this play um i don't want it to sound like i don't i do yeah really really enjoy it um but i'm a dramaturg so i question everything and i sort of criticize everything that's you know it's your job (laughs) it's my job um (laughs) um so, but my favorite part is actually the entire character of Bradley. And yeah. it's just so endearing. Um, just really kind of innocent and lovely. Um, and he sort of plays this, um, just wanting everything to turn out great character. And it's really sad. Yeah. And um, my favorite I guess my favorite scene with him in it is there's a portion where he and Powell have gone up on a cliff and, um, and Powell gets stuck and they've gone up sort of at the, against the better judgment of all of the other people in the expedition. (laughs) Um, And so Powell gets stuck and he's too far away. Bradley can't reach him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Bradley decides to take off his pants and, lean them down and so that Powell could grab on it onto his pants and he pulled them up that way um and that that really happened so that's really really yeah that was a real I think not remembering correctly at this moment I think there was one other uh of the men involved in the scene in maybe in real life or in the play I can't remember Mm. specifically um but that's my favorite moment 
That is it. That was actually a moment that while reading, I kind of giggled out loud because picturing this like barely out of high school age kid trying to help his this guy who was probably uh, like 30 missing his right arm trying to climb. What even in God's name were they thinking? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's I, I think that adds to sort of the ridiculousness of the play in general is that Bachhaus has collected all of the most ridiculous moments and put them all in one place. Um, I'm thinking of the the scene with the whiskey where they sing about whiskey and all of a sudden oh, there's yeah. all of this whiskey when they have no room on the boats for anything extra, but they brought all of this whiskey that also really happened. Um, they I'm snuck surprised. whiskey on. <laughs> Um, and then it ended up being, he was like, Powell was really happy that they brought it because it ended up being a huge mood booster. And because they had lost so much and they had capsized so much, it really mm-hmm. helped them continue for as long as they did. Yeah. And something interesting too about that part is that, uh, well, about that character, Bradley, is um, mm-hmm. in real life, the 19 year old was Andrew Hall. Yes. And yeah. not Willie Bradley. Right. Again, it's one of those moments where she, uh, she just switched just uh, the truth just because. Um, and it's just because of the unreliability of the narrator that it came from. Yeah. And I think it really does work out um, and makes kind of sense to make Bradley the 19 year old because historically he came on the trip because he wanted to be discharged from the army. <laughs> so yeah. to me, that kind of, it did make sense, I think. Yeah. And so my last and final question to you, Anne, is the question I ask everyone at the end of an interview <laughs> on the podcast, which is, why do you think this play should continue to be read or be performed? Um, well, it's a play that's not by a cis white man. So let's start there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all plays that are not written by cis white men should be read and performed. Um, I think it's time yep. to change the canon and just... Why this podcast exists. <laughs> right. Let's just dr- get rid of the old canon. I don't care about it anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, that may be controversial. I don't care. I, I don't ever want to read, um, you know... O'Neill play ever again in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's, that's point number one, I think is just, it's a contemporary play by a woman of color. Who's the daughter of immigrants. Like that's, you know, even just in that it bears um, attention, but it's also, you know, it, it talks about a historical moment that we don't know about. It's drawing attention to, how white and male our history is and Mm -hmm. that's important yeah yeah and 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 again the how white and male the retelling of history that we have been told is and that's not necessarily the truth yeah no for sure and especially like we were saying earlier in theater something i'm a huge advocate for which you know is Mm -hmm. for more roles for people who aren't cisgendered white men. Yeah. And I think this play uh, provides a lot of really nuanced roles for actors who aren't white cisgendered men. Yeah. And that seems, that's kind of what Bachhaus does. She's sort of made a name for herself in plays that change what theater looks like. And I think that's really great. It definitely makes me want to read more of her work because I really enjoyed yeah. reading this. But also I just, as someone who used to be an actor and as someone who is now a playwright trying to do it the same thing, it's mm. really cool to read these plays and see these plays where there's where these actors get a chance to be out there and like be the lead role, be the hero of the play, be the, you know, whatever they want to be. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, if that's, if that's anybody's goal, yours or any of your listeners, I would definitely say, uh, if you want to continue to read Bachhaus plays, I would suggest the next one after this be Wives, which is also sort of a a dramaturg's dream. Um, (laughs) So it's very historically based, entirely historically based, um, but also sort of a product of its time of the, of the, 10 years after me too. And, Mm. um, you know, it's, it's definitely a contemporary look at history. 
Is that her most recent one? I don't believe I've heard um, of it. Yes, I think so. Oh, don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say it was either 2019 or 2018 oh, wow, um, okay. at Clear Horizons, which is where um, Men on Boats was first produced. Mm-hmm. It's where I got the summary for Men on Boats for our dramaturgy section, Playwrights Horizon. Yeah, they're great. I love them. They do some really great work. Um, Really hope to work with them myself one day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I would, yeah, that would be where I would suggest people go next. All right. You heard it here first, folks. Wives (laughs) by Jacqueline Backhouse. That should be your next read after, of course, this one, Men on Boats. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Anne. I really enjoyed talking about this play with you because I just enjoy talking to you, but also I really enjoy talking about theater with you. Um, (laughs) So where can people find you and your work if they want to? Yeah, um, I have a website. Um, It's just my full name, AnneKarinaBacken.com. If you need to contact me or if you want to contact me, there's a little contact section on my website. Um, Yeah, and you can also find some more of my work there i i keep excerpts of my packets on the dramaturgy section cool so if you guys are interested in seeing some of ann's work on dramaturgy seeing her packets that's where you should go and of course um if you want to see any of the work that both of us have done together some of that is on my website as well which is just my name brynhambly.weebly.com so you can find some of her work there as well <laughs> yay <laughs> yay <laughs> Thank you once again, Anne, for coming on the podcast for a second time. Wow. (laughs) And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to contact the podcast to suggest future plays and or guests that you might want to hear about, just email me at theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com with no hyphen. That's theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the podcast on Instagram at at sign playmatespodcast. That's at Playmates Podcast. Feel free to DM me on there as well. Also, if you if you have some time, if you could take a second to write a good review and rate the podcast five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would mean a lot to me. Uh, would mean a lot to me. <laughs> and also would help other people to see the podcast so that our little uh, group, little club of uh, theater lovers can just get bigger. And that's never a bad thing. So I can't wait to see you all in next week's episode in which I will be discussing Aliquippa by Lydia Valentine. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Have a safe and fulfilling week. Bye for now.